Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Chris Stroud. And this is the show where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, we have two guests who will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our friend, Dr. Paul Carson, well-known to our listeners, an expert in infectious disease and public health. He hails from Fargo, North Dakota. We also have a repeat visitor from one of our podcasts, uh, Dr. Peter Melanoski. He's a private practice psychologist from Indianapolis who appeared on our podcast dealing with the psychology behind conspiracy theories. Yeah, you know, I think about a program at my parish called Mass Hysteria for middle schoolers. <laughs> and so our, our show today really is Mask Hysteria because there has been a little bit of a hysterical <laughs> Uh, response to masking. And I think we've seen it all play out a little bit in the media, the popular, popular culture, certainly on social media, YouTube land. We've seen people take some pretty hysterical and emotionally based uh, responses to the whole masking question. So I think we're going to be able to throw some water on the fire where it needs it and maybe interject some science here today. You know, science and reason, Peter is wonderful about untangling some of the emotional baggage we all carry, no matter what part of the way we see the masking issue. You know, it's, we're recording this on Monday, July 20th, and I woke up yesterday and received an email from Paul Carson and, and uh, Tony Flood, a philosopher we've had on the show, about this subject, and I was really moved to think, gosh, maybe we should do something about this. And it would really have been on Paul's mind for 24 hours. Then I called Peter Malinowski and he said, Tom, I was going to do a podcast on that tomorrow, but if we can do it and get it out to EWTN, I'm on, I'm on board. So we have put this together in less than 24 hours. <laughs> That's our disclaimer in case any of it sounds really bad. <laughs> you know, wearing a mask, it's funny the effect that it has. I occasionally go out into public wearing my surgical scrubs out of necessity. And I feel like if I don't have a mask on, Everyone, wherever I'm going, is looking at me thinking, he's a healthcare person. He, mm. above all people, should really have on a mask. Now, I shouldn't go out in my scrubs. That's pretty tacky. But fashion faux pas notwithstanding, um, <laughs> I, I feel like everyone is watching me if I'm not wearing a mask. And, and we've used the phrase virtue signaling before, <laughs> and it can certainly feel that way. But I suppose it's a bit of peer pressure. But it certainly has affected me that way. I don't like to wear a mask. But as I think we'll get into as the show develops today, it doesn't bother me in the least to wear a mask to mass. It bothers me to wear a mask to my favorite big box store. That's completely illogical. Um, but that's just the way that it seems to affect me. How about you? It felt really weird the first time I wore a mask outside of work because like you at work, I'm, I'm wearing it all day. And I felt like, oh, everybody's looking at me. But I think the thing that's helped me, and I was reflecting on this, you know, between cases today, is we've got going on a disconnect between what masks are in terms of an aid to reduce this pandemic and what masks mean. And they mean so many different things to different people. In fact, my wife today uh, led me to these YouTube videos. They're actually ads for a company called Vistaprint. And their whole ad is, you know, the mask means you know, freedom. The mask means your ability to do this. It's like what the Surgeon General said on July 4th, who happens to be a Catholic. He said, uh, the mask means freedom to do more things. And, you know, Vistaprint, the mask means love. It really is charity. The mask means solidarity. So when I think of it that way, it's easy for me to wear a mask. If I think the mask means, you know, too much government power in my life, gosh, I wouldn't want to wear it at all. Yeah, it is that big difference between what it is uh, and what it might mean to the individual. But, you know, for a healthy serving of humble pie, you and I sat in front of these microphones months ago, and we thought this would be over by now. Um, <laughs> and Paul Carson and some other very intelligent people talked about a second wave or a second bump uh, in the data. Of course, we also talked about the infection rate going down as the temperature went up. So once again, through this pandemic, we've had to adjust and readjust as the data comes in. Now, as, as scientists of sorts, we're used to doing that. Yes. Um, but it doesn't make us look good. Uh, it certainly doesn't make the policymakers look good when they have to revise. I think about our guest who taught us the difference between wanting to be right 
wanting to have been right. Yes. Um, because we haven't always been right on this. Um, and that can be no. hard to admit. I think we'll, we'll encounter a little bit more of that as we talk about masking today. I know in the prepping, Paul and Peter have both talked about the need for humility on all our parts. But so that we maximize our time with our wonderful guests, let's get to our trivia question of the day. And the pandemic has affected travel in huge ways, even within the country. So I looked, July 17th, the website travelandleisure.com listed 16 countries that were allowing Americans to visit. In other words, the other almost 200 countries aren't. So the trivia question has three parts. What, number one, can you name one of the two countries in Europe allowing Americans to visit? Number two, can you name the only African country Americans may visit? And in fact, our priest from Africa yesterday is going back home to this country this week. <laughs> and third, what is the only Middle Eastern country where Americans may now travel? We'll be back with our awesome guests and more on mask hysteria here on Dr. Doctor from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio in just a few minutes. We are back with our two guests today on mask hysteria. First, returning to Dr. Doctor, uh, both Dr. Paul Carson and Dr. Peter Malinowski. Paul is well-known professor at North Dakota State University, infectious disease specialist, serves as a consultant to the North Dakota Department of Public Health. This is his 10th appearance on Dr. Doctor. We're going to give him a gold watch, retire him, and make him an honorary co-host. Peter has worked as a private practice clinical psychologist in Indianapolis for 20 years. He's president and co-founder of a ministry called Souls and Hearts that provides faithful Catholics with guided, customized programs designed to remove psychological obstacles to giving and receiving love from God and neighbor at www.soulsandhearts.com, where he publishes his podcast entitled Coronavirus Carpe Diem, or Seize the Day. And he's going to help us learn how to think about the mask issue. Paul and Peter, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Thanks for having us. You yeah, it's great to be here. Betcha. Eh? So, Paul. Remind our listeners what the first statements from the CDC and World Health and the, or the, the WHO were back in March and early April regarding the wearing of masks. Sure. The first, uh, you know, the first proclamations from our big public health organizations were that we need them in healthcare. Uh, that healthcare providers uh, needed them to protect themselves, but the general public did not need to uh, use these, and that there wasn't good evidence that they were helpful to the general public. And what has changed since then? Well, first, I would say that wasn't that, that's sort of what you hear, uh, and there, there's truth to that. But they, it was more than that. They actually, from the very beginning, recommended that if you were sick, that it would be a good idea to wear one. But what's changed is we've just learned a lot more. And it, at the beginning of the epidemic, I mean, I was one of those people saying, I don't think the general public needs to wear them. And somebody reminded me of that very vociferously, very recently. <laughs> um, and we've learned a lot more since then. <clears throat> we were basing a lot of our information on what we knew from influenza. And I think the viruses are different enough that uh, it looks like masks may work better for COVID than for influenza. Part of the issue is, is that uh, we've learned coronavirus uh, um, infects people without symptoms a large chunk of the time, at least 40%, and very minimally or mildly symptomatic in probably another 20, 30, 40%. So that the vast majority of people have either no symptoms or very mild to minimal symptoms and may not even recognize that they have it. So they may carry it, be infected and shed it without knowing it. And so uh, masking has become one of the ways to mitigate that asymptomatic spread or that pre-symptomatic uh, transmission that uh, we think is responsible for a lot of the spread. Peter, over to your side of the booth. Do you think that this change in public policy from not recommending to recommending masks is part of what's fueling the refusal for some people to not wear them? Or are there other things that's turned what I thought was a public health issue, wearing masks, into a political issue? Well, it certainly contributes because I think people, there's, there are some people that are really avoiding just trying to learn about this. There's so much information. Some people are like, like lagging behind. They're not following this that closely. And so, and I also think we're in a time where there's a lot of strong populist feelings where people have felt really disappointed in civic leaders. Uh, when people feel that government leaders, church leaders, medical experts are not attuned to what they need and they're not invested in their best interests. So, you know, 
I think there's this, there's this sense that, yeah, when things change, when there's not a consistent message, when there's different pundits saying different things in different forums, that's hard to keep track of. And there can be assumption that really nobody knows anything about this. And there can Peter, be just a sort of what's raw from that. I really like the way you say that, Peter, because it seems inconsistency typically outside of this pandemic would be an avenue for saying your argument's wrong. You're inconsistent right. in your approach. Inconsistency in the pandemic world in which we are now all living means evolving data and better understanding. Right. Um, and that's a hard, that's a hard choice to make, I think, for a lot of people psychologically. Well, and I think people listen to how much confidence something is said with, you know, and so it's hard to tolerate uncertainty. It's hard to tolerate that we might give you different recommendations in two weeks. That's, that's something that people have a hard time listening to, hard time taking in. And so, you know, about it being a political issue, um, you know, I think, I think what's happened is that people feel sort of disconnected. And especially when the mandates seem to be coming from a long way away from Europe, you know, for example, where the World Health Organization is based, or from Washington, DC. It's like, does that apply to me, right? I'm looking around, I have my experience, this isn't jiving with what I'm seeing, boots on the ground, what I'm experiencing right here, who am I going to trust? Paul, you shared with me some great stories that illustrate in real time with COVID the benefits of masks, both for preventing other people from catching it and for preventing the wearer from catching it. Tell us some of those stories because they might illustrate it better than any data would. Right. So um, first, even before those stories, uh, we, we got some, uh, you know, a bunch of new studies, uh, data that that did experiments kind of looking at how far a cough goes, how far a sneeze goes, what does that cloud of droplets sort of look like? And, and a number of sort of engineers doing things that showed, you know, if you put a mask over it, it really stops it. Um, and then now we have some stories that seem to be backing that up. So I'll, I'll share three as quickly as I can with you. Um, first one, actually you shared with me, it was a publication from the Canadian Medical Journal found a gentleman from Wuhan, China, who was starting to get a little bit sick, had a big trip planned to Toronto, uh, got on his plane from Wuhan to Guangzhou, China. In Guangzhou, the international airport, he was starting to have a little more symptoms, decided to get on the plane anyway, and took a 15-hour-plus flight from Guangzhou to Toronto. <laughs> During that time, he uh, got worse. He was coughing almost the entire flight. Uh, he was seated with 350 passengers, 25 of whom were seated right around him within six feet, um, snuffling, coughing, uh, and starting to have fevers throughout that entire 15-hour flight. Uh, he landed in Toronto, went to his home. His wife started to develop symptoms the very next day. Uh, they both decided to go in and get tested. Lo and behold, they were both positive. And that launched uh, an investigation from the Canadian Public Health Service. Well, they started looking at these 350 passengers who were in an ideal setting to transmit. They're in a confined space over a prolonged period of time with a early symptomatic person who's coughing the entire flight. You couldn't design a better uh, scenario to, to transmit to a bunch of people, including the 25, especially the 25 people seated right around him. Uh, but then when they did the contact investigation and followed all these people up, uh, they found there was essentially no transmissions, um, not even the 25 who were right around him. And the, the thought was is that uh, he, because he wore a mask the entire flight, he never took it off, it appears he did not uh, spread it to anyone around him. So that was a very compelling uh, story. Amazing story. Yep. Uh, second one uh, that was published just recently in uh, the CDC's uh, Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report was after um, Missouri opened up after their lockdown and they f started to allow gyms to open and hair salons to open, etc. There were uh, two hair stylists working in a salon and uh, one of them started to have some symptoms, relatively mild, uh, continued to work. Her coworker, uh, within a day or two, started to have symptoms as well continued to work. They both worked for eight days with their mild symptoms. Um, the second coworker uh, started to get a little sicker towards uh, uh, day eight or nine and decided to go in and get tested, was found to be positive. That prompted the first hair uh, dresser to get tested, found to be positive. 
St. Louis Public Health launched an investigation of 139 clients that sat in their chair anywhere from 15 to 45 minutes. Um, and uh, not a one of them uh, had infection. 67 of them agreed to get tested even though they didn't have symptoms. None of them were positive. Now, again, the caveat was that the hairdressers and their clients were both masked the entire time, not any transmissions. Now, was it the blocking of infectious respiratory droplets from the hairdressers wearing a mask or the clients wearing a mask protecting them from droplets that, I mean, these people are face-to-face, -face, less than, you know, sometimes a foot away. Or was it both? And I think your third or story is going to talk about a different type of protection. Right. So the third story uh, took place uh, in a hospital setting where uh, a gentleman was admitted with community-acquired pneumonia. He was admitted to the hospital floor, but within 24 hours, he had very rapid deterioration and had to be rushed to the intensive care unit. On the way, they had to bag him. Um, in the ICU, they had a team, uh, an emergent team to do an emergency intubation. They struggled, uh, couldn't secure an airway. They had several attempts trying to uh, secure his airway. They had to bring in a video laryngoscope to try and uh, uh, see his airway better and eventually got him intubated, had to bag him a little bit before they got him hooked up on the, on the ventilator. And this took, transpired over a fairly substantial period of time. 41 healthcare workers uh, were involved up close uh, with this whole process. And the next day, he was tested for COVID and found to be positive. So they had to do the look back on all these healthcare workers that were involved in this, what we consider very high risk aerosolizing procedures. You know, securing an airway intubation is considered one of the highest risk settings. And the patient never had a mask on and couldn't when you're trying right. to intubate. The patient didn't have a mask on. They were working on his airway the whole time, right in his face, right? So <clears throat> um, 41 workers were involved. 85% of those workers had only a medical mask on, kind of like you see lots of people wearing uh, not one of the heavier duty N95 masks. 15% had one of those on. Almost all of them had uh, eye protection, some kind of eye shield. Uh, not one of them had a transmission. So here it wasn't blocking the source, but it was uh, people wearing a regular medical mask with a very high risk exposure and none having a transmission. Right. Beautiful examples. Back to you, Peter. We've heard that there are some people who refuse to wear a mask because they think wearing a mask is immoral. Is wearing a mask a moral issue? And if not, what causes some people to see it that way? So the first thing I would say is that anytime you have a contentious issue, when there is highly polarized uh, interactions about it, it's always about moral issues. It always comes down to moral issues. People don't have really intense conversations unless there's some sort of moral quality in there. And we're dealing with something with this mask issue of life and death, right? I mean, physical life and death as well. So I think what's happening is that people who are objecting um, are looking at it in terms of, um, am, I need to be true to myself in some way. I need to be able to protect myself in some way. It may be from government overreach or control. You know, requiring masks today might mean contact tracing tomorrow, which may mean mandatory vaccines for this, for this virus the next day. And then, you know, taking it all the way to a 1984 type of scenario. <laughs> so, you know, so I think there's some people that are like looking at that on a slippery slope, but I also think that um, there's a lot of safety issues that people don't necessarily realize. Like people, for example, that have experienced different kinds of um, traumas may be really preoccupied with being able to read faces, you know, being able to understand what people's expressions are uh, because there's like safety in being able to read people. There's also, um, I think, uh, a sense that, people are tired or feel devalued or dehumanized if they get reduced from a three-dimensional object to a two-dimensional object. And what I mean by that is being seen as a potential disease vector, right? That the only way you're looking at me is as a potential disease vector. You know, I'm a bigger, I'm bigger than that. I'm more than that, right? I'm a human being. Stop looking at me as though I'm just somebody that's going to, that's going to contaminate you. So I think there's a pushback in those kinds of things. But I don't, I don't think a lot of this is conscious. You know, when you talk to folks about 
why they don't wear masks, it's sometimes hard for them to really articulate it. It may be more of a visceral gut sense. They may be thinking more right brain, more intuitive thinking, more sort of emotionally driven thinking. And that sometimes gets criticized by folks that are looking at this from a much more left brain perspective, a much more analytical data driven perspective. And so sometimes you get a, a lack of communication because of that, different ways of knowing different epistemological approaches. So you are the I've first person that. to say epistemological on the show, by the way. Chris, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> you may be the last to say <laughs> that. Uh, I've seen a similar response uh, to testing. You know, I, I personally have had a couple of patients who were just vehemently opposed to testing, and our hospitals are requiring testing for elective surgeries. And I'm old enough to remember back in the early days of HIV testing and kind of had a flashback to that. If I test, I'll be positive. I'll be ostracized and sent, right. you know, to an island somewhere. Right. Um, is there something that's just in our psyche that that makes us fearful of that kind of information being known about us? I think I think there's 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 sometimes fear about something being said definitively. If I can believe that there's a hope that I don't have it, you know, even though I've got all these symptoms and so forth, sometimes people mm -hmm. want to cling to that. It's a form of the psychological defense of denial, right? I don't want to know. I, it, it, and that's protective in a sense because the fear is that, there, that I would be overwhelmed, right? That I may not be able to handle it. I may break down. Mm -hmm. And so you'll often see kind of intense responses, responses that may not always be uh, seem seem uh, understandable on the surface. But if you actually understand, if you actually get into why people are acting the way they do, if you can take the, the time to actually enter into their phenomenological worlds and kind of really understand those inner worlds, then what they're doing begins to make sense. It starts to make sense. If you can look at the underlying uh, motivations and intentions that are driving it. And those underlying motivations and intentions are almost always good even though they can be misdirected and maladaptive. We now have a first for Dr. Doctor. We are going to have audio role playing. <laughs> Peter is going to role play somebody who doesn't believe in wearing masks with Paul. And I think he's going to help us unpack this probably on the other side of the break. We have maybe five minutes to get into this. And then after the break, we can do even more. Peter, take it away. So I, I, you know, you're kind of riding me a little bit on this, Paul, about like the having to wear the mask thing. And I know it's, I know it's your profession. I know it's a big deal for you. You know, I'm just not convinced about this though. I mean, I, I'm not seeing it in my family. I'm not, I heard, I don't know anybody. Well, my second cousin has a friend that apparently had COVID, I'm, but it's not real close to me. Right. And so I think there's just a lot of hype about this. And frankly, I got to tell you, I'm getting kind of getting kind of uh, just exhausted with it all. Yeah, Peter, I, I think I can relate to that. I think most of us are uh, um, frustrated by the, the imposition of the different measures on us, this isolation. I've, I felt it myself. I have family members who are, who are tired of this. I, I personally kind of feel weird when I go out with a mask on. It seems very strange. And, you know, we used to kind of associate that with kind of particularly weird people, you know, right. that, that would do that. Um, but, but the thing is, is that we, now we've got a growing body of evidence that really suggests they make a difference. And even though we might not see directly our family members or people around us, <clears throat> that doesn't mean it's actually starting to impact our community. So I'll, I'll give you just an example in, in my own community here. So we, we're, I'm in a state that's pretty low. We don't, we, we're, we're doing pretty well here in North Dakota. But I'm the director of a nursing home where a few workers brought it in and it tore through that nursing home within three weeks and killed 18% of our residents. And within about five weeks, 25% of our staff tested positive. So the problem with the virus is, is that once it kind of gets going, it's, it can be just like a wildfire. It has exponential growth. And, in, and when it gets in the wrong place, it really can wreak havoc and cause uh, serious harm. So, but here's the deal, right? We were told that it's about flattening the curve. Right. That's the initial messaging. We're going to, we don't want the hospitals to be overwhelmed. You know, we don't want healthcare workers to, 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 to have more in their hands than they can handle. And, you know, we've, we've flattened this curve. And my question is, like, where does this thing stop, right? Supposedly you can catch it again and again. Um, like, at what point 
are we going to say, look, we've got to let this thing run its course. You know, we've got, we've got a con economic consequences to this. We've got, you know, emotional consequences, this, relational consequences to this. We've got, you know, people that are suffering in a lot of different ways. And my concern is, is that your medical people are looking at this like just having the tail of the elephant, right? You're looking at it as just, you're telling me that an elephant's a snake because that's the piece of this that you're looking at right? That's the, you've got the tail. It looks like a snake. And I'm over here in a different place looking at this elephant from a different side. And so I, you know, that's one of the things where I just feel like there's this real disconnect between, you know, a guy that the guy like me, that's got to go in and work at the barbershop and it's going to get shut down again. And what I'm going to do, you know? Yeah. You know, uh, those are great points, Peter. And I think, I, I actually don't think we in public health and in healthcare have done a very good job at looking at the downside of uh, the measures we say to kind of help uh, prevent this public health pandemic. Um, those had a real cost and they hurt real people as well. And we need a bigger dashboard than just numbers of cases and um, numbers of hospitalizations. But to, your, to, to a couple of points, first, I just want to correct you on one thing. Um, you know, we weren't sure about the reinfection and you can get it over and over again. Evidence is really, really mounting up that that's probably not the case, that, uh, that when we get infected and recover, it's really looking actually much better now that we have a very durable immune response that's going to protect us. That's one thing. Um, and I think you were right. Uh, our initial goals and initial message was flatten the curve. And we did that in, in most of the United States, but the curve isn't flat now in a whole bunch of states. So the curves are on the trajectory in the Sun Belt in a big way, and we're gonna see another wave of deaths uh, sweeping through those states, because you know the deaths are a trailing indicator, and we're already seeing uh, hospitals being stretched to the breaking point. You may not have uh, you know, seen this, but in Florida, 88 hospitals uh, are at, I at capacity. They have no more ICU beds. <clears throat> San Antonio and Houston, the doctors are crying for help because they, they can't manage the numbers of cases that are overwhelming their system. So, um, it can uh, uh, be an unflat curve again in, in short order when we, when we back off. But here's the thing, is that the masking isn't um, paired with shutdowns and paired with uh, social isolation and paired with the, those more restrictive measures. I actually think it's the way out of those or away from those, that if we can do that simple measure of masking when we're around others, especially indoors, we might not need to go to lockdowns. I, I actually am increasingly convinced it's our path to freedom away from those more restrictive things. And after the break, we're going to go more into that and be back with more here on Dr. Doctor. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor from the studios of Redeemer Radio and a feud of sorts that's, uh, that's, out, <laughs> that's working its way out. Before us, we have Doubting Peter and Persistent Paul um, working on, and Paul is doing his best <laughs> to convince Peter that he needs to wear a mask, especially to mass. <laughs> so Peter, give some feedback on how Paul did. So there were a lot of things that were really great about what you did. The first thing is that the feedback really should be personal, right? So the fact that you use my name, Paul, is like really important because that grabs my attention. Now I'm a person, right? You're seeing me, you're hearing me, right? Um, and so that's really important. I think a lot of times the resistance comes in when there is this perception that the people that are trying to convince us are really agenda-driven. You know, there's a, the perception of a presumptuous technocratic elite that wants to impose an agenda on, on me, right? And that's just going to, um, you know, lead to a polarization. So you use my name, you see me as an individual, and if you begin to listen to my concerns and address those concerns specifically, rather than using a boilerplate template, you know, that you, that you just are sort of pushing, right? All of a sudden, it's, it, it's now much more in a relational matrix. I think what you want to do is look for the motivations that would appeal to that particular person, too. In other words, when we're working one-on-one, -on -one, and, and this is different if you're doing a mass media presentation, right? Then you're in the public relations and media relations and, you know, advertising and things like that, marketing. But, but I mean, really trying to sort of engage there. But the warmth and the understanding and the maintaining that this is a child of God that you're dealing with, right? This is a, this is a child of God, and they may hold different ideas, you know, but to, to come with that humility and with that charity and with being okay inside if I don't agree, right? Sometimes, you know, one of the things that we have and when we're trying to convince somebody of something is that we've got to make it happen. We've got to change that person's mind or there's something wrong with me, 
right? Then I'm inadequate or I haven't done my job or I'm endangering the community because I'm failing to convince this guy that he should wear a mask, right? So those are sort of basic, sort of basic ideas right out of the box. Very helpful. Uh, Thank you. Beautiful. Paul, you sent me yesterday an article by Goldman Sachs, Money People. There were some incredible takeaways from that. Can you summarize that for our listeners? Because I think they'd love to hear it. Yeah, so it was interesting. It's actually Goldman Sachs Research Group. So they have a whole uh, kind of research arm that looks at, uh, you know, policies and uh, practices and different things that are happening and how they may affect the economy. So they were approaching this from, you know, uh, how, how do we kind of keep the economy going? And they, they did an in-depth analysis of <coughs> vaccine, or I'm sorry, vaccine, of uh, <laughs> masking mandates. These sort of run together in my head similarly. Uh um, on masking mandates, and uh, and they looked at them in uh, different countries. They looked at them in different states, and when they were implemented in various states, and they really found after they tried to adjust for other mitigating factors that um, masking mandates. And I think we all want to avoid mandates if at all possible. But but the, that when masking bumped up, it really uh, seemed to have an impact on the uh, trajectory of new cases and the trajectory of deaths. And they actually uh, estimated that by doing uh, masking mandates, and I would maybe put as a surrogate in there, just getting our masking up, and they they said mandates will typically bump that up at least 25%, um, that uh, you may be able to avoid a substantial hit to your GDP. Uh, They they estimated that for the U.S., um, um, trying to implement that would avoid potentially a 5% hit to our uh, gross domestic product um, from the to, things that come. And to make that more that personal, part. it means that the businesses where we work are more likely to stay open and busy right. if we wear right. masks versus if we don't. It's, it's a way to prevent uh, a more harmful lockdown with sheltering in place and business closures and, and uh, even medical office closures. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's said differently. Like, like, it keeps us out of March. Exactly. It keeps us out of like what's happening in California right now. I mean, they're back to closing things. So, you know, can we can we do that with uh, a much less restrictive measure to keep businesses open and keep livelihoods going? And it's interesting because you've shown me data that those who identify as conservative or Republican are less likely to want to wear masks. Yet those same people are the ones who would tend to be more concerned about the GDP. Do you right. see an interesting disconnect there? <laughs> there, there does. I, it, it's been a little confusing to me. That was some data from a survey from the Pew Charitable Trust that seemed to uh, suggest that you know use of vaccines or, or I keep saying that, use <laughs> of masks and uh, acceptance of masks was uh, um, kind of fell along political party lines, which uh, I was a bit surprised to find. But yeah, there is a disconnect there with the kind of pro business crowd. At the beginning of the show. Uh, Chris and I were talking about the difference between what a mask is as a public health aid and what a mask means to people. And I know Peter has some great thoughts on this topic. So I think it varies a lot from person to person, you know, because think about it. Think about what the mask is. We'll start with what the mask is. It's actually something that covers you, right? It actually covers your mouth, right? In a sense, kind of silences. It's hard to sing with a mask in church, (laughs) you know, it's harder to breathe, with a mask on, at least an effective one, um, you know, it's harder to breathe than if you don't have it. It, it, it sort of conceals, it also conceals other people, right? So there's a, there's a sense that I'm alienated, right? Masks have an association with bandits, for example. Like, you know, it used to be I couldn't wear a mask and go into my credit union. Now I can't go into my credit union without a mask, right? You know? Um, so, um, so the, uh, the, 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 I think there's, I think the meaning is often very idiosyncratic to you about like, what does this mean for me as a person? For me personally, I mean, I, part of me struggles with the idea of being seen as a potential disease vector, right? Being less known, more isolated, more distant, treated with suspicion as though I'm going to harm or kill somebody else, right? That these fears are actually coming up to the surface. So, so uh, for other people, it means, it means uh, you know, things around government control, uh, potential overreach of government, you know, who, you know, body integrity, you know, things like that. So I, I'm not sure of any good survey data, data that's looked at that yet. I don't think it's actually been done yet, or at least I'm not aware of it. But I know uh, that the way that that's construed, because I've had a number of clients that have very much vehemently opposed masks, and they all have different reasons for it. They all have different reasons for doing that. 
Peter, do you, do you, this is Paul, you know, I, I, do you think that some of it too is associating the masks with the other measures, the other restrictive measures that really were sort of onerous? I mean, do, do you think people lump them all into one basket? I think, I think that that's really common because I think that when we're, when we're putting on the mask, it's immediate, right? There's no way to avoid the sensations of the way it clings to the back of your head or pulls on your ears or, or whatever, you know, whatever those physical sensations are. So it's, it's, you know, it's, it makes everything like immediate, real, physical, visceral, right in your face, literally, right? And makes it hard to forget or get away from the rest of the whole COVID thing. And I think some people are just so tired of it all. They just want a little break. And if they can't even go to the coffee shop, you know, and they've got to have masks on, everybody else got to have masks on. I think it's just, I think there's just some weariness with that. And you're right. It, it lumps everything else into it. That grandma's sick and does she have COVID and, you know, and just like keeps it so present. And what happens is that we begin to wear down. We just don't have the, 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 uh, the cognitive energy to continue to like be continually exposed, if you will, to all of that COVID psychological stimulus. Peter, many dioceses are asking all people that attend mass to wear a mask. What is our responsibility as Catholics in the face of such non-moral decrees, whether from our bishops or in some states or cities from our government leaders? You know, you're, so you're asking a moral question, and I'm not an expert on, you know, moral philosophy. I will say, though, that, you know, personally, I've worn a mask for a long time. So if anybody's thinking that, you know, that role play was like me just being myself, <laughs> no. I mean, I've worn a mask before it was mandated. I wore a mask because, in part because um, I want to help other people who might have a lot of concerns be more comfortable. So even though I don't like to be considered a disease, a disease carrying vector or potential disease vector, I also appreciate that that may keep people from, you know, being willing to come to mass that may keep people from being willing to, um, to engage in different kinds of, of activities. And I, you know, when you look at the government decrees in the gospel, the one I always go back to is, uh, is not so much when our Lord says renders unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. There's another one in which, you know, Jesus is talking to Peter about paying the temple tax and, you know, the children are free, he says, but Peter also, he instructs Peter to catch a fish. There's a denarius in there that he uses to pay the temple tax for both Jesus and himself. But I think about the government decree about the census when Our Lady was carrying our Lord, right? Um, close to nine months pregnant, right? She's, the decree would require Our Lady to travel between 70 and 90 miles to get from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And what did they do? Did they say, no, this is an unreasonable request. We're not going to do it. We're going to get a medical exemption. You know, we're going to, you know, no. And that was a really, that was a really arduous trip. Because if Chris days. was Mary's ob doctor, he probably would have forbidden that, wouldn't he? <laughs> I, I was thinking a, about that. Yes, I would have written her a note in stone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Caesar would have honored it too. But right. but I think you, I think it's, it's a fascinating point uh, personally. And I've seen this in friends. I don't mind wearing a mask to mass because if the bishop told me to wear a bathing suit to mass, I would do it out of <laughs> obedience. Um, but that's me obeying my bishop and not obeying a public policymaker. Right. And the libertarian side of me wants to tell the policymaker to go pound sand because right. I disagree with them on so many things. But I don't disagree with my bishop, or if I do, I'm going to obey him anyway. And I think we've experienced that because there seems to be sort of Tom and I were talking earlier, these cohorts, you know, there's the group that says, sure, Bishop says it, I'll do it. There's another group that says, not doing it no matter what. Right. Dumb. Another group that says, I really think I should, and I, I buy everything Paul Carson says, but I just don't wear my mask, you know, sort of um, maybe some just apathy. And then there's the other group that says, okay, sure, no problem. I'll wear my mask. And I think we're all in those groups for different reasons. Yep. And it's just so complicated. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think the, uh, the, the obedience question, though, also, at least within the church, you know, if, I, don't, I don't know if any of you guys have been in the, were in the military, but I'm not. I've never been in the military. You were in the military. Well, then you would know, Tom, that it doesn't, you don't always have to agree with your commander. I mean, you know, and this is a church militant, right? This, there's a military model. I mean, we call ourselves a church militant. And, you know, the other thing is, is that I've heard, you know, 
my 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 thirteen year old daughter, for example, has very strong opinions about masks. You know, um, <laughs> and, and everything like, else, <laughs> and, and a lot of other things, right? And, and you know, and, uh, God love her. She's she's dear to me. She's a, she's a, she's a young woman of very strong opinions on a lot of things, but you know, she really hasn't looked into this, right? I mean, she hasn't read. You know, she's heard some things. She's come to her own conclusions. Okay, um, there's a lot that we still don't know. And one of the things that our church that our church uh, grants a lot of merit to is obedience, even when we don't understand. Mm. And we do, we do owe obedience when, as long as it doesn't violate faith and morals, kind of like in the military, right? I mean, if the, your military right. commander said demanding that you do something that violates the Geneva convention, all right, then you can refuse that order. Right. But, um, but otherwise, no. And I think obedience is something that's tremendously misunderstood and tremendously undervalued, especially in U S culture. Right, where there's this attitude of rugged individualism, or you know, you don't tread on me, don't tell me what to do, uh, and we can be losing out on opportunities for for a lot of merit and a lot of graces in the eyes of God. You know, listening to you, Peter, I think of a non-medical benefit of the mask too, in the sense that I think you you mentioned this, it can be a bit of a reminder. Uh, in so many words, keep your distance, sneeze into your arm. The pandemic is still here. That's why my whole family's wearing a mask, you know, as we go to the grocery store. It, maybe it's not doing anything in that very moment to prevent the infection, but it is reminding people that this isn't over yet. And maybe we, maybe if no other reason, uh, that would, that's another reason to mask when you go out yeah. in public. Paul brought up something earlier that I want to couch in terms to ask Peter, and that is some people find it a stumbling block when other people at mass are not wearing masks, they feel unsafe when they're going there. And I would say even further than unsafe, many people who are wearing masks see it as a sign of charity, of solidarity. But if they see that, what does the person not wearing the mask mean to them? And to these people, it means, I don't care about you, even if that's what the non-mask wearer doesn't mean. That's what it right, means to right. them. So, Peter, how do we get across this stumbling block that people have about not wanting to go to mask when they see people they're not wearing masks and thinking they're either in danger or these people don't care about them. So whenever you're working with somebody, there's two like this, there's two virtues that I think are really important. One is humility and the other is charity. Those two, you know, and, um, and I would just, if I saw somebody that I wanted to work with, it was going to, to, to mass, wasn't wearing a mask. And I, you know, I thought there was an issue there. I would start with something like, you know, tell me about where you are with this whole mask thing, you know, um, you know, just, really try to understand and listen and really take in what they want to say first, right? Um, you know, to, to make sure that they really feel heard and understood. And then I think what we want to do is help people think through it you, and rather than give them a, a nice packaged answer. And I think this is a particularly difficult um, difficult to do if you have all of the background and the knowledge that, say, Paul, you have, right? Because it can look like such a disconnect, right? And there can be such a temptation to like, just like lay it out in a way that would make perfect sense to you, right? Right, guns blazing, right? Um, but, but, but again, uh, I used this analogy before, right? We want to be like the sun rather than the wind with the, with the guy carrying that, wearing that cloak, right? Aesop's fable of the sun yes. and the wind. They had a yes. bat. They're going to blow the cloak off, right? The wind was, but the sun shone on the man and there was kindness there. Because I, I think a lot of times people don't know. People are so self-absorbed. One of the things I realized as a psychologist is just how self-absorbed, how much time we spend thinking about ourselves. And a lot of that is like about our own, um, about our own survival, our own self-regulation, our own, our own capacity to be adaptive and to function in the world. And it's when we're stressed, like we are in the culture right now, sometimes we just need some help to break out of that, to be able to see something through the eyes of another. Paul, if people are going to wear a mask, what type of mask should they be wearing? Which one should they buy or make? Yeah, well, it turns out almost anything helps. <laughs> um, so uh, uh, there was a nice uh, study that looked at, you know, kind of the transmission of uh, um, the aerosols from uh, coughing or breathing in a simulation with, you know, a bandana versus a folded handkerchief versus the medical masks that you can, you know, that we see in the clinical setting, but you can now buy pretty right. You can buy them at Costco now, I see, yes. um, and, and a number of places. Um, it turns out one of the best things was stitched quilted cotton, like a couple layers of stitched quilted, quilted cotton. Uh, and I, there's a lot of ladies I know from our church that are making those. So I, um, 
so almost anything works, but I would say the medical masks that you can buy pretty readily, or if you got somebody who can stitch something together for you with two layers of the quilted cotton works very, very well. Paul, you've mentioned earlier about non-masked people being a stumbling block to others at mass, and you've got some thoughts on this. Yeah, I've just seen it in, uh, in, you know, in one of my own family members where this has become an I issue and a very close friend who kind of quit uh, going to his usual church because of concern for his family and the number of people not masking. And, you know, Peter addressed this very, very nicely. I, I was thinking that, the, you know, the passage from Romans, I think it's Romans 14, where, you know, Paul is talking about, you know, what's clean and unclean food and that, you know, to him, everything was sort of clean. But that uh, don't, he was admonishing, you know, his listeners to, to not be a stumbling block over this issue. Like if your brother is sort of weaker on this, go with it to, to help them to not be a stumbling block in their faith. And it seemed to me that, that that actually might be apropos for this as well. Even if you're not sure about the necessity of it, don't we want to charitably not be a distraction to our, our brothers and sisters at Mass and uh, in, in church so that they can worship? And Paul, you also had a great comment about how we come to scientific knowledge. It's not a straight line, is it? No. So uh, it's, uh, I think one of the really difficulties that people struggle with is that the, the public health and medical authorities seem to change their mind and go back and forth. But it's really, that's the nature of science. And it happens faster than ever now. You know, you put out a hypothesis, you test it, and then everybody in the scientific community challenges that and re-looks at it and re-does new experiments on it. And so truth is really this oscillating curve up and so down. kind of. What we're seeing is, is the norm for science. Most yes, people aren't used to that. Yes, Chris, you've got some key takeaways that you'd like to emphasize. Well, you can always count on me for the most simplistic summary of things because that's, that's how I think. That's how, that's how we obstetricians think. You know, there doesn't, one, there doesn't appear to be any evidence that people get reinfected uh, after having been infected. There was some, some rumors about that. But I think it's important for listeners to know this idea that pre-symptomatic people can, in fact, and do, in fact, in fact infect other people. So just because you feel fine, you can infect others. Um, and masks are not perfect, um, but they're better than nothing. And they may actually prevent some infections. And that means it's going to prevent some uh, avoidable deaths. And then I think lastly, I think Paul made this point really well. There are real people in real places that are really hurting. It's not just New York anymore. Uh, it's Miami. It's California. It's a lot of larger urban areas where hospitals are full and ventilators are being used and we need to pay attention because the curve isn't flat in those places even though it may be in your community especially if you live in an area like tom and i do or in north or south dakota but uh in other more populous areas real people are really hurting and peter you've got some comments that you want to leave with listeners about the contentiousness of what's going on it's one of the things that most concerns me about this whole crisis is uh, the lack of civility, the lack of a sense of social propriety, which is undermining and eroding our capacity to communicate, you know, to even be able to have a reasonable discussion. And so I'm just going to really emphasize humility and charity. When you're talking with somebody about this, to really approach this with a spirit of humility, of openness, and of charity, um, because that, that, that can allow for a lot more disagreement. It's going to create a, a frame in which you can help each other think through these things, where you can be with your brother or with your sister in a joint search for truth, you know, if you're not both busy you know, trying to press agendas on each other and trying to get people to conform. So, so one of the things that, that I would really be thinking about that I would be really recommending to folks is just really, really remove that beam from your own eye, especially <laughs> with humility, you know, before going after specks in other people's eyes. And remember too, Romans eight twenty eight: all things work together for good for those who love the Lord. So even if somebody else doesn't do what you want them to do, it still can be okay for you, you know? Thanks be to God. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Paul. This has been a tremendous episode here on Dr. Doctor. We'll be back with the trivia question answer. 
You're back listening to Dr. Doctor from the studios of Redeemer Radio, and it's time for our rather complex trivia question answer. Just to set it up, on July 17th, travelandleisure.com listed only 1,600 countries that were allowing... 16, not 1,600. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of countries that were it allowing... It is a lot. <laughs> only 16 countries that were allowing we Americans uh, to visit. So Tom's got a three-part trivia question that he is going to wow you with now. So... What is one of the two countries in Europe we might visit? They are Serbia and the land of some of my ancestors, Croatia. You may visit those places. Uh, the European Union has recommended against travel, but these two have bucked the trend saying they'll allow, allow Americans and others in. How about the only African country that Americans may visit? It's actually an African country that my son visited while a student at Walsh University where Chris and I both had sons in the same class. And that country is Tanzania. And finally, the only Middle Eastern country we may visit, and apparently it's one city within this country we may visit. The country is the United Arab Emirates, specifically the city of Dubai. And tourists there have to arrive with a negative COVID-19 test taken no more than four days before their departure and or get tested at the airport upon arrival, according to the government. Well, there you have it. This is your travel, chance. Travel is limited internationally for Americans. Yeah, I think Chris is probably plotting his trip to Dubai now, if I know him. <laughs> Too hot for me, Tom. <laughs> I'm with you there. Well, we want to thank you listeners for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association, brought to you from our virtual studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. And also send us your questions. Tell us what you like. Tell us maybe what you didn't like, something you heard uh, and how it changed your life. It may be something you'd like to hear. Be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. And we are signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word doctor to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not, and their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com.